This is Matt Jones, and you're listening to the Eat Kentucky Podcast. Welcome back to the Eat Kentucky Podcast, where we celebrate Kentucky, its food, and its culture. This is your host, Alan Cornett. This episode's guest is not only a restaurateur, but also the founder and host of Kentucky Sports Radio, Matt Jones. He is the co-author, along with Chris Tomlin, of the New York Times best-selling book, Mitch Please, which is not only a tour of all 120 counties, but a critique of Kentucky's longtime United States Senator Mitch McConnell, as well as an autobiographical recounting of Jones's decision of whether or not to challenge the Senate Majority Leader. Matt and I take a deep dive into his book, discuss frustrations with the political process, and also three recurring characters in the narrative, New York Senator Chuck Schumer, Senate candidate Amy McGrath, and a mysterious figure we only know as the Tracker. Plus, we discuss how restaurants such as his sports bar, KS Bar, are doing during the current shutdown, prospects for reopening restaurants, the great east-west restaurant divide that he discovered during his tour of Kentucky, and, of course, whether or not sports will come back soon. Please take a moment to subscribe to the Eat Kentucky podcast and to leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. Also, you can help support Eat Kentucky by visiting patreon.com slash eatkentucky. Now join me as I talk with Matt Jones of Kentucky Sports Radio and author of the New York Times bestseller, Mitch Please. Matt Jones, welcome to Eat Kentucky. Uh, Thank you. Glad to be here. Congratulations on being a New York Times best-selling author. Yeah, that was a great honor. It uh, goes, it's, it's very cool that we were able to, to make the list. And I think, you know, it was a very weird time to release a book when there are no bookstores open and, and all that. But I think what it did do is probably allow more people to read than maybe would otherwise. And so I think it, it probably hurt us a little bit on sales, but probably helped us a little bit on actual books read. So it's kind of a little bit of a trade-off. Yeah. I mean, like maybe less money in your pocket, but more impact on the whole, uh, maybe, but, uh, yeah, maybe, I mean, I really wanted to, uh, uh, I really was hoping to make that list to just to give the book a little bit of a spotlight. And I think that happened. And so, um, so that's that's good, and and my hope is that it continues to just get more people who who see it and 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 who who will read it because I think the thing about Mitch Please is that whether your interest is politics, your interest is Kentucky, or your interest is just kind of in good stories, I think there's something for you in there, and that's what I really want people to understand. Well, I, I'm glad you said the name of the book because I was going to ask you what the what the proper inflection is. Um, is it? Well, I mean, if I was going to really do it, I'd go Mitch, please. But uh, but I mean, I'd say I'd probably go Mitch, please. Okay. Be a little more uh, professional. <laughs> well, I want to definitely want to talk to you uh, about the book and and some different some different themes and characters in it. I wanted to ask you though. Of course, this is Eat Kentucky and. 
we we do have a little bit of a food angle here time from time to time you are a restaurateur uh, yeah. <laughs> with uh, with KS bar and grill and so this is an unsettled time for lots of things but especially for for restaurants and uh, eateries and you know of course with yours is specifically built around sports so you're kind of hit doubly with that in a lot of ways yeah, it's a very difficult time for restaurants in general. Um, and I would make the argument that for restaurants in Lexington, at least, it might have been literally the worst possible time this could have happened in terms of it was right before, especially if you're a sports restaurant, sports bar. I mean, it was right before uh, March Madness, which gives you some of the best for us. It's some of our biggest weeks of the year. The uh, Sweet 16 basketball tournament brings tons of people to Lexington, most of whom eat at restaurants in the downtown area, which is perfect for us. So it was terrible. I mean, and it was it was late enough that we had ordered food supply for that period of time. Oh, sure, I, I bet. Uh, so, like, I mean, you have a it, – it was just a – it was a huge hit. Now, we're a little more fortunate than some of the rest in the sense that we have an advertising platform we can use right. so that we're not forgotten during this time. But I mean, still, the, the the money in is is significantly less. You know, the the small business loan that came, uh, which can turn into a grant, is is really is a really positive thing for us. Um, but it's only eight weeks, so I mean, I I think the restaurant industry is really going to be in trouble. And and you know, we use the restaurant more as a as a supplement to our other businesses. But for people who that is their primary source of income. I think the restaurant industry and retail are the two things hit the hardest and it will be very difficult for a lot of these places to come back. And, and that really saddens me. Yeah. I think it's clear there are going to be a lot of places that won't be coming back, which is, which is sad. And, and we won't really know fully what those are till, till the dust settles and things start reopening and, and places don't, then reopen they just never come back and it's, it's see, i actually be- worry about the period right after we reopen almost even more because so i'll just use ours as an example you know we can we had a lot of our staff were like college students who didn't come back you know they're not in school right but but you still can sort of pare down your um staff and everything to what to what makes sense but when you reopen you know, once we reopen, I'm not sure the government's going to be helping a whole lot. And I still think there's going to be a long period of time where people are hesitant to to, to come to restaurants, you know? Right. Uh, And and that's what worries me is I think there'll be a lot of places that reopen and they're just, their financial uh, build will change. And then what if they say you can only have half capacity? I mean, some restaurants literally need so much per table per day to work. Uh, So it's, it is a, it's a very tenuous time, I think, for all, all restaurant owners. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the plan that was put forward by, I guess, Mayor Kane of Knoxville, uh, in Knox County, Tennessee, uh, yesterday uh, at the time of this recording. But it was a his plan, I guess his administration's plan, for reopening things in Knoxville. And one of the things in that was a plan for restaurants where – there, it began at half capacity or maximum 100. Uh, and so that it's exactly what you said with that, uh, with that idea of reopening was a, a limit on capacity. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I get that, but I think, 
I don't, regardless of what the government does, you still have to see what consumers are going to do. And I, right. you know, I, I put up a, a thing on, on so Twitter asking people when the first football game comes back, are you going to go? And over half of the people that follow me said, no, well, those are presumably hardcore Kentucky fans. Right. And if yeah, they're not, going, well, then who's going? So I, I, I'm concerned that everything opens up and that's, people will go to stores because they feel like they have to, but restaurants are still kind of a luxury. I don't know. I, I don't think the, the reality is none of us know. And for all, sure, sure. For, for all of the talk about and, and the criticism various governors and are taking, you know, they, nobody knows we're all just guessing. So I, I hope it, we've never been through something like this, but I do think restaurants are as vulnerable as anywhere else. Yeah, I think there's no question about that. And I hope that we can get things headed towards reopening sooner rather than later. But I, I you know, I understand that, that we just don't know what the timetable looks like on that. Yeah. And I don't, I, I, and I would, I have to say, I would hate to be the one making the decision because, you know, I mean, there are, there are lots of times when you're in leadership, you have to make a decision that's important, but there aren't a lot of times that you make a decision that, literally will be life and death on it on it and that this is one of those and you open up too soon there are gonna be people who die who wouldn't otherwise die you open up too late there's gonna be people with financial ruin that they might never get out of it is a i, I can't think of for a governor a more difficult decision oh i agree with that and i um, you know from my from my standpoint you know i would like to see things open but I do recognize that all of the governors, ours included, are in, are in a difficult spot with that because regardless of what they do, there's going to be criticism from either side and, and legitimate cases that I'm sure you can point to, uh, but, it's, you know, but, they've got, but they've got to come up with something, and I guess that's, that's what they signed up for. So. There will be a lot of pressure because you know, when the president does something – there's not really another entity to compare the decision to, you know what I mean? Like right. it'll yeah. work or it won't. In this case, you're going to have 50 different states. And if you make a decision and another state makes a different decision, there might be proof that you were wrong in a way that doesn't happen a lot sure. otherwise. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, we, we, there's been a lot of talk about the Kentucky versus the Tennessee model and I think you're going to see that a lot, which is why I think it's been smart to see a lot of states sort of get into little compacts where they say, we're all going to do this together. Right. Uh, Kentucky is not in one of those yet. I wish they would get in one because I actually think that's, that's really the way to do it. Well, it, it's interesting. I, I saw uh, Governor Bashir's at least part of his briefing uh, past couple of days, maybe yesterday, but he, somebody had asked him about, the, the compact because uh, they've got one up based around New York state and then we'll base one based around California. And he said, yeah, we don't really have an official one. He said, but I actually talked to uh, the Ohio governor, governor DeWine and the Indiana governor whose name I don't remember. Uh, he said, I talk to them literally every day and we do coordinate uh, some things that we're going to do. So, uh, you know, maybe there's kind of an unofficial, compact there he he does not seem to talk to the tennessee governor every day so well i think they i think it was very um 
I think when when that graph got out that compared the two states, I, the state of Kentucky didn't put that out, but I think it did cause some tension, certainly on the Tennessee side, because it got national publicity and it made Tennessee look bad. It did. And so everyone I've ever – everyone I've talked to from Tennessee seems very – adamant to to compare Tennessee and Kentucky so it's probably difficult for them to now work together which is weird because I don't think Bashir or the Tennessee governor was the one who put that out person who put it out was just a social scientist but you know what I think it caused uh, it caused some difficulty well and of course then Governor Bashir told everybody don't go to Tennessee (laughs) so that probably didn't see but I understand why he said that (laughs) well sure I get it there are a lot of places like where I grew up in Middlesboro all the way down through. I mean, you just go through Southern Kentucky with Bell County, McCreary County, uh, Simpson County, all the way through down through Christian County, all those places that are on the Tennessee border. And a lot of those places in Tennessee is maybe where they go get groceries or they go eat or whatever. And because of taxes, a lot of times people work in Kentucky, live in Tennessee. So it actually isn't easy if you're trying to keep your state safe if the state below you has a different set of rules. Right. Sure. And, uh, but a lot, but like you said, a lot of those people, it's just, they don't really recognize the border in their day-to-day life. They just travel back and forth to carry out whatever business they need to carry out. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book and, uh, you, like you said, the timing, the timing should have been great. Turned out not to be so great. But you you spent a lot of time and a lot of burned a lot of miles uh, going around visiting literally every county, and that's that's really quite an accomplishment in and of itself. Just getting to all of those counties. Yeah, I'd been to probably 116 of them of the 120 before. I hadn't been to the ones out there next to the river, the Mississippi River. But yeah, uh, yeah, we went through all of them in 10 weeks. It was a lot. I wish we had more time. I think that would have certainly made life less stressful but uh the goal was to try to find a story in each county um the most of them connected somehow to public policy and to mitch mcconnell although some of them didn't some of them were just sort of uh you know asides that were entertaining or 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 whatever uh but the goal was that in, in each county you would reflect something about that county's way of life or what happens there And uh, I think we did a pretty good job of that. And and one of the things I say to people is, you know, even if you love Mitch McConnell, I don't know why you would, but if you do, uh, the, this book is really, you get, you would enjoy just reading about these places because for a lot of Kentuckians, I think the vast majority, there are parts of this state they don't know anything about. And this is a good way to kind of learn about it. Oh, sure. I've, you know, I've traveled, around most of the state over my many years and and yet there are still holes of places that I've just not been I just not had reason to go there and they're they're sort of those places that you don't go unless you need to or have to uh and you know those they're they're in little pockets and a lot of places for example you and I've probably been to in eastern Kentucky southeastern Kentucky a lot of people in other parts of the state would have zero reason to go there just because they're hard to get to. And there's, there's no compelling reason for them to, but when you were, when you were going around the state, where was, uh, where was it the most eye opening for you? What, what were you surprised by or interested in that you hadn't seen before? 
Well, I mean, for me, I think it was just a product of, of, I mean, I grew up in the mountains, so I've been to all of those mountain counties. Um, I have a pretty good notion of the way of life in the mountains. Um, the parts I, I, I had not spent a whole lot of time in the parts of Western Kentucky that are sort of Midwestern farmland. So, you know, I'd been to Hopkinsville a lot, Madisonville, Paducah, but the sort of counties that don't have big cities out there, like Livingston, Crittenden, Hancock, or, or, you know, Hancock, Ballard, Carlisle, like those, I just had never, I mean, I'd, some of them I'd been to maybe even for a show, but didn't spend time. And you don't realize how, I mean, this state has a lot of different kind of culture in it. And that is very much out there, a Midwestern farm culture. It's a lot more like Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, than it is the South or even West Virginia, Kentucky, you know, Virginia. It's, it's, I was used to the Kentucky that was bluegrass, Louisville, Appalachia, Northern Kentucky, but there really is a definite Midwestern part of the state that I just didn't know a lot about. And when you get out there, literally the most important issues are farm issues. They're not, you know, for instance, when we were doing this traveling, the governor's race was going on. And the biggest issue in that governor's race were the teachers and the pensions. They didn't talk about that out there. Their biggest issue out there were the tariffs. That's what they cared about because the farm economy is what drove the whole area. And it was just interesting because that wasn't something I was as familiar with. Yeah, I had uh, Commissioner Quarles, uh, Agriculture Commissioner Quarles on the show uh, beginning of the year. And, you know, he, he talks about the the amount of agriculture that Kentucky produces, which, you know, we're familiar with a lot of the things like uh, tobacco in the past, but uh, horses and, but you've got a lot of, a lot of uh, corn and wheat and, and cattle. And a lot of that, comes, yeah. yeah, a lot of that comes from out in the Western part of the state that, that most of us don't really see uh, at all, but, but it is a, a substantial part of, especially the agricultural production of the state of Kentucky. Yeah, I don't think people realize how big that is. I certainly didn't. I mean, you get, you get out to that part of the state, besides the governor and maybe even uh, instead of the governor, the agriculture commis- agricultural commissioner is the most known politician in the state. Right. You know, J- Jamie Comer was, Ryan Quarles is, you know, Again, that was during the governor's race, and we used to comment, Chris Tomlin and I, that we would see no Bashir or Bevin signs, but there'd be a ton of Ryan Quarles signs. <laughs> right. <laughs> because for them, that's the race that mattered the most. Yeah, Ryan Quarles is glad to hear that, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, he was and, – and I think that part of the state also – it was interesting just from a political standpoint, that part of the state – is sort of detached from the day-to-day state conversations. They get their media uh, out of Evansville, out of Cape Girardeau, Missouri, out of Nashville. And so they're not really as connected into state politics. And so the national politics plays a bigger deal. And, And what I mean by that is all across Kentucky, if you look at the governor's election returns, in like 110 of the 120 counties, Matt Bevin did worse this time than he did in 2015. But in 10 counties, 
he did better, and they were all in the far western part of the state. That's interesting. And I think that's and I think that's more because out there it's just more of it wasn't so much about Bevin Bashir, it was just Republican Democrat, right? Because they don't get that day-to-day news about him that we did elsewhere. And I just I, you know, on election night, you may remember Bashir, it was called for Bashir at a time it looked like he was going to win by a lot. And in the end, he didn't win by a lot because when the far Western Kentucky came in, Bevin did a lot better than people thought, not enough to win, but a lot better than folks thought. Yeah. And you, this is something you point out in the book about how that part of Kentucky has really shifted electorally because uh, it used to be back in the, you know, 84 when McConnell ran against D Huddleston, that that was an area that was going to be heavily democratic in its voting but what mcconnell did was was able to not make it quite as bad and he was able to pull out the win and and since then it's it's been a real shift out in western kentucky yeah i mean it's become mostly republican and that's mostly cultural and and McConnell realized, you know, people think of Eastern Kentucky as the most religious part of Kentucky, and it's very religious there, but it's a different kind of thing. I, It's hard to describe, but it is much more sort of, it's a rowdier Christianity in some ways. <laughs> I, I would say that's probably true. <laughs> and whereas out in Western Kentucky, it's more Bible Belt, just traditional Bible Belt. And I, I think the social issues are such a huge concern out there. And I think it makes a big difference. Now, I mean, there's still pockets where you find Democrats, Owensboro. It's mostly where the cities are. Owensboro, right. Paducah, Henderson, Murray. But when you get into the rural areas out there, it's it, what's interesting about out there in Eastern Kentucky, Trump is significantly more popular than the Republican party. In Western Kentucky, the Republican Party is more popular than Trump. And that's just a weird dynamic to me. And I think, but I think it also shows you the difference in the cultures, even though they both are now voting Republican. Right. Now, that, that's, an interesting, uh, that's an interesting breakdown, I think. While we take a brief break, I wanted to tell you about my day job and sometimes nights and weekends. I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. When I'm not eating or posting about food, I help people find the home of their dreams in the Lexington area. If you need to buy or sell your home, please email, text, or call alancornett at kw.com or 859-327-1818. Now let's talk more about food. In, in the book, it, it's, I mean, it's divided into counties. You give us a, a story in each county, but you've also got this narrative flow of your decision uh, at the beginning. Are you going to run for the Senate or not? That's kind of, and you're, as you're going through the book, you're mulling this over. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, those of us who are KSR listeners heard, heard you talking about some of that along the way, but there's also some some insight we hadn't gotten before uh, involving uh, Chuck Schumer and Amy McGrath. Those are two characters that that kind of that that keep popping up. The the Schumer I thought was particularly interesting. Your your dealings with him and trying to get a meeting with him. Yeah, I mean, I, I 
it's it's unfortunate, but it is it has become the case that, and I think this is true for the Republican Party as well. I know it's true for the Democrats because I dealt with it, but I, I I've heard that it's similar for the Republicans. That basically to kind of be a Senate candidate and to be the candidate the party gets behind, you basically have to convince the leader in the Democrats' case, Schumer's it's Schumer, and the Republican it's McConnell, that you should be the person. And then if that happens they can make it very difficult for anyone else to win the primary. And they tend to do it now in almost every race. Now they say they don't, but they're lying. (laughs) Well, of course. I mean, they do, they do it and they do it in ways that you don't think about. Like I think people think that they fund the candidates. Well, they don't. I mean, the democratic party doesn't just give Amy McGrath or whoever the candidate is money, but what they do do is there's a group of probably 200 to 400 major donors that they say to them, give to this person and not that person. And those 200 to 400 donors are the biggest donors in the country. And when they get behind a candidate and then they tell their groups of friends to get behind a candidate, and all of a sudden the whole country's supporting this one candidate, they also block you from hiring staff. They basically go to all the the major political uh, campaign managers and operatives and say, listen, if you work for a candidate that's not one of our candidates, then you'll never be able to work for one of ours again. And it scares most of them away. I'm sure it would. I'll give you an example. There are seven polling firms, so people who do polls. Sure. that only work with Democrats. There's probably six or eight that only work with Republicans. Then there are a few that work with both, but there are seven that are Democrat only. And generally speaking in primaries, people hire Democrat only ones for whatever reason. I tried to hire all seven to do a poll, just a poll for me, just to see who would win me versus McGrath. What are the, what, what are the, what are the numbers? And I couldn't find, none of them would do it. None of them. Because they knew if they did it, they would never be able to work for any other national Schumer-approved candidate, so they wouldn't do it. So I had to hire basically kind of a, I don't want to say low budget, but a cheaper one. <laughs> and the poll wasn't as good or as helpful. And that those are the little ways that they really make sure that the candidates, therefore, will win. Right. Well, and, and as you said, I, I know that that – has to go on in, in both parties. And it's, it's a professionalization of politics that I think most of us don't really find attractive. And, and of course, it's also stupid though. I mean, it's like, it's, I mean, what, what does Chuck Schumer know about who can get elected in Kentucky? I mean, like, you know, I mean, whatever else you want to say about whether or not Amy McGrath can win or not, the idea that Chuck Schumer thought that Amy McGrath was substantially better candidate than me or Rocky Adkins or other people in Kentucky, how does he know that? But he made that decision. And once he does, then it, it changes the balance of the game so much that, you know, when you run against Mitch McConnell, you'll have all the money you need for the general election because everyone in the country hates it. But in a primary, the money matters a lot. and McGrath was able to raise so much money that it makes it almost impossible to challenge her because you don't have access to that amount of money. Right. 
and she was also uh, and I, and this isn't just her, but any candidate is also then able to take any leftover money from her prior race, which was the rep, the the U.S. House race, and roll that over for a future campaign, right? So she's sort of going into it with already some funds uh, behind yeah, her. She had some, but more importantly, and and to this, she deserves credit. I'm I'm, I'm often critical of this whole aspect, but she does deserve some credit for this. She was able to in her congressional run cultivate a large list of donors and supporters because of how good her ads were and stuff. And so she had an email list that included like a million people and she's able to use that. You know, my email list includes everyone that's ever signed up to KSR. <laughs> I didn't even put that. You're not even allowed to use that. So like you can't use other business email lists. So, I, so, so to be honest with you, I had no email list. So, but that, that makes a difference. She can send out an email that just says, bam, Will you donate? And she has a million people on it. Oh, sure. And you see that, of course, with all sorts of politicians uh, who are always, and parties who are always raising money. If you ever get on a list, and you know, I get stuff from people, I don't know how I got on their list. I never gave them any money because I don't give anybody money. But, uh, you know, if there's some event that happens, whatever it is, you'll get an email from, you know, Mitch McConnell or the, or Amy McGrath or whoever you know, you need to give money because look at what they just did. You know, it's a sen sensationalized uh, spin on it, but they're always raising money. And I understand that that's, I guess at, th at this point, money is what is what works. And, uh, and that I know. And that's Mitch McConnell's fault, by the way. Totally his fault. Well, you talk about that. He completely changed the system. He complete, I mean, he individually completely changed our campaign finance system. And I, I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. I bet 90% of Americans think there's too much money in politics. And that is all McConnell. And I won't bore people with how that happened. I, I talk about it a lot in the book. But he, he completely, almost single-handedly transformed our political system to where money is the controlling factor. And I'm not sure it's ever going to change. I I would think it's unlikely to. It's one of those things that once once it gets in, it's hard to get it out. Um, yeah. The other so so the those are two of of the three characters that sort of jumped out at me, uh, Schumer and McGrath. But also was your tracker, who was the uh, the guy, the unnamed guy who just goes by the tracker uh, in the book, uh, who literally was was hired to track you, was just to follow you around. Yeah. So, you know, I knew that that happened, but there's a difference between knowing it happened and having it happen to you. And, you know, I was on the road for, okay, so normally you hire a tracker and they go to people's campaign events, right? And when a campaign's going on, people have staffs and like, it's not crazy that there's the tracker. But this was a little bit different because I wasn't even a candidate yet and I don't have a staff. It was just me and Chris. And then there was this kid and he basically followed us for 10 weeks all over the state, wherever we were, there he was. And it's not clear to me totally what he was supposed to find. I think he right. would like, you know, he would like film us sometimes at our radio shows, but those shows are over the air. So I'm not really sure what, but I mean, I think the, the goal was to find, try to get some clips of me in an embarrassing situation. Uh, and, you know, he followed us for like, 10 straight weeks. And it was at first creepy 
But as I talk about in the book, over time, we kind of got to know him because look, it was just the three of us. You know, right. we'd go to these rounds and it would be me, Chris, and him. And so we kind of became, if not friends, friendly. And, uh, and it ended up being a really strange relationship. I won't, you know, spoil how it ended, but uh, it ended up being a really strange relationship. But it was, it was also a testament to sort of the absurdity of politics now that, you know, they hire this kid to follow us around. And by the end of it, all three of us are like, this is a really dumb thing we're all doing. Sure. I remember you would bring him up sometimes on, on the radio show. Oh, the track, you know, the tracker's here today. And, uh, well, and people I, got to know who he was. Like oh, really? yeah. he, would, he would take pictures with people sometimes at oh. shows <laughs> because, you know, he became kind of a part of the uh, infrastructure of the show. But, you know, I, I think that there are things like that that we do that just make no sense, but people just do them. And it's not what politics should be like. And I'm I'm already a public figure. So like I was more used to it, but like, if you're a private person trying to run for office, the idea of all of a sudden, then you just get a person following you everywhere is a really bizarre thing, but it's what happened. Well, uh, and I, I would understand it would be a little disconcerting to, to have to have that going oh, on. Certainly at first it was. And, you know, my girlfriend is in New York, and there was a period where they were going to start tracking me and her when I was there, and maybe even when I wasn't there. And that really threw her off. I mean, that was like, she was very thrown off by that. And it actually sort of angered me a little bit. But, you know, that's what they do. So, well, if he had been thinking, if your tracker had been thinking, he should have written a book out of all this. He could have, he could have done a book from the other side, taking notes. <laughs> well, maybe he will. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I haven't talked to him in a while. I don't, maybe, maybe he will. I don't know. He needs to contact Simon and Schuster and, and get on that. I yes. was, uh, I, so I was interested in, in your, in your story about Fancy Farm because Fancy Farm, uh, is, you know, it's a traditional event. Uh, it's on the, as basically as far Western part of the state almost as you can get. And when I was 14, which is a long time ago, and in fact, it was the year that Mitch was running for Senate against Dee Huddleston. I went to Fancy Farm with my dad. We went out there uh, as the first time I'd ever gone. I've been, I only, I've only been twice, but I was very interested in politics at the time. And so I actually got to shake hands with Mitch McConnell in 1984 when that, when that happened. But, you know, it was, it, it's a, it's a wild, very Kentucky kind of event. And, uh, and then you got to host it, uh, I guess for one, one time and one time only a few years ago. Yeah. So they asked me in 2015 to do it. And, uh, they, they, at that point there had been, uh, it's kind of crazy to think now because, with Matt Bevan and then and Mitch, like we've had a lot of sort of exciting politics, but in going into 2015, I think there'd been a number of years where it kind of had been sleepy in some ways. And I think they were trying to spice it up. And so they asked me to come and do it. And I said, I would do it if they would let me kind of roast everybody. And they well, said, that's, yeah. And that's kind of the point of the, of fancy farming. Yeah. But they, they, it's normally like, I don't know, silly jokes. You know what I mean? Like I, I was going to do a little bit different in terms of being a little hard. And, and you normally the jokes come from the politicians, right. not, the, not the MC. Um, and so I just kind of wrote this little roast with Chris and the, and my friend Jason. And we, 
um, and I just kind of filleted everybody. And they, uh, and I think people in the crowd liked it, but I don't think the politicians liked it a lot. <laughs> um, so they haven't, I actually like the folks down there a lot and I'm friends with the people who put it on, but they haven't asked me back and I'm not sure they will, at least as long as McConnell's there, because McConnell threatened to never come again if they let me uh, MC. Now, it's interesting. Of course, McConnell, as, as you mentioned in the book, McConnell loves the event. I was uh, also interested, which you don't talk about uh, in this, but connected with that, that Matt Bevan, as a contrast, hated Fancy Farm. And that was one of the things that, to me, was a, a signal of very much of Bevan as a, I guess, as a non-Kentuckian, because he just didn't get it. Well, he, he didn't like it for weird reasons. He was like, I don't like this because this is divisive. Like nobody was more divisive than him. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, it was I, strange. I didn't understand. Like, there, I don't. I can't think of any politician we've ever had in the state that was more easily happy to call the other side names, and yet he got up and lectured everybody about how the event was bad because we were calling everybody names. And I'm like, that makes absolutely no sense. I think for Mitch, the reason he likes it is in many ways the event is sort of how Mitch sees the, the, the world or the country. It's like, I'm looking at this crowd, half the people like me, half the people hate me, and my job is to make the half the people that like me happy. <laughs> and I really believe that's kind of how Mitch looks at the world. And so it doesn't surprise me that he enjoys it because I think that's kind of how he looks at politics. It's split up in half and let's try to beat the other side. Right. Well, and probably not limited to him, but I know as you discuss in the book, that's sort of, uh, sort of your take on, on how he approaches everything. Yeah. I mean, he does. I think it's, you know, I, I don't, I don't think Mitch McConnell is a bad human being. I don't know him, but I do think he sees politics as just a sort of uh, realistic realpolitik power struggle. And the number one goal is winning that struggle. Then when you win, well, then you can do some of the policy things you want to do. But really the most important thing is winning the struggle. And I think that's how he looks at it. There are many people in politics who are in it for idealistic reasons. There are people who are in politics who are in it for fame. There are people in politics who are in it because they don't have anything else to do. I think Mitch is in it to have power. I think Mitch likes the accumulation of power. I think he likes the accumulation of it even more than he likes the execution of it in some ways. And I think that's why after 36 years, he keeps running. I think it's really the whole meaning of his life is this political uh, sort of search for power. It, it's a hard habit to break. I, going along those lines, I, I, was, I was interested, uh, and I think readers will find interesting, your, uh, your talk with uh, David Williams. Yeah. Uh, on, on, it kind of addresses uh, a lot of those issues or he's sort of retired to a, I mean, not retired, retired, but left statewide politics to, to work as a judge. Yeah. He, I, my conversation with David Williams is very illuminating because in many ways on the state level, he was kind of what Mitch McConnell is on the state level in Kentucky. He was the head of the Senate. He was probably the most powerful Republican for many, many years. And he really liked it. And then he decided to get out of it for a variety of reasons. And when he did, 
he realized how empty his life was while he was in it. He basically talked about how everybody just likes you because they're trying to get something from you. And I think, but what's interesting in talking to him is I think he struggles with the fact that he knows he's a better person now than he was when he was a senator, but he still misses being a senator. Sure. And that it was really fascinating talking with him because he, he has seemed to me to be in a constant struggle with recognizing that the life he lived as the head of the Kentucky Senate was in some ways empty. He made a quote to me that like the graveyards are full of indispensable people. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's in, the, in the book. But, but he also was kind of like, but I do miss it. I got to admit. And I think that's one of the reasons Mitch McConnell is running again after 36 years is I think if he quit, I, I don't know what he would do. You know, Justice Rehnquist many years ago, if you remember, um, he retired and died like a month or two later. Right. And I think there are some people for whom work is that much of a thing that that's what happened. Well, sure. Supreme Court justices are, are uh, probably a, a, good, a good group to bring up with that because you rarely see them retire. I don't know. Do you ever see them retire young and go enjoy – Oh, you know, a life of fishing or something. They, no, they never do. I mean, they, they retire old. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to think the, the, the last one to retire. I mean, my, I guess David Souter was relatively young, um, you know, compared to the rest of them. But, but in general, they stay a long, long time. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's addicting, obviously. That's, uh, the, and I think by and large attracts, to some degree, a, a certain personality type who who seeks that out, and then, uh, and then they then they won't leave, and so it, you know, it it can be an ugly business, which is one of the one of the big underlying themes of the of the book is just kind of your struggle with the the seedy underbelly of of the way politics works, whether it's Democrat or Republican. Yeah, I mean. I don't want to act like, you know, I'm some goody two shoes that looks at the world in a Pollyanna way, but I knew going into this that the, why I wanted to run and people can believe it or not, but I know myself, the reason I wanted to run is I think there's a large group of Kentuckians whose voices are not heard by either party. And I knew that my primary objective would be to try to better their lives. I just, I knew that, but it was striking to me how much that idealistic view is irrelevant to success in politics. Right. Yeah. And, and, and that's unfortunate. And I, I think that was the biggest awakening to me. You know, I knew there were cynical people in politics. I knew there were bad people in politics. I knew all that. I just didn't realize how having the right motives and the right goals is almost never rewarded. That's right. It's, it's disqualifying almost. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really isn't. And, 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 and that, you know, the old saying, no good deed goes unpunished. Sure. I, I think that's really true. I, I think the, you know, the, 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 I, the sort of stuff that like, for instance, if I had, if I'd run a big part of the conversation would have been about the 15 years of writings I had done on KSR or what I had said on the radio, almost none of which would have been about policy, right? It would have just been goofing off on radio. 
But that probably would have been the centerpiece of, at least in the Democratic primary, how people would have judged me. And that's so irrelevant to the issues. But the reality is most of how we decide leaders now is irrelevant to the issues. Well, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit to talk about an important divide that you brought up in the book, and that is the divide between barbecue in Western Kentucky and Mexican restaurants in Eastern Kentucky. Yes, the two most prevalent uh, restaurants in each part of the state. Uh, it is, you know, barbecue in Western Kentucky is more understandable because there's been a long time association with barbecue in Western Kentucky. But I tell you, every little town in Western Kentucky has got their barbecue place. And they all will swear to you they have the best barbecue place. And if you try to argue they don't, they'll be like, nope, you got to eat it. I ate more barbecue in the two or three weeks we were in Western Kentucky than I've eaten in my life. Well, there and are worse things than that. There are, but there comes a point that it all tastes the same after a while. Like, I mean, there's only so many ways you can do barbecue. Um, and then in Eastern Kentucky, like, I think people have this idea that there are all these, like, mom and pop sort of southern food places. And there are some, but there aren't a ton. Really, the, the most prevalent restaurant in the mountains, besides fast food, is Mexican. And there were some really creative little Mexican places around there. And uh, it was just interesting to me how, depending on the part of the state, barbecue, barbecue is the thing in the western part of the state. But in the eastern part of the state, it's not kind of mountain cooking. It's mostly Mexican. <laughs> now, when I, when I was growing up in Clay County, the, the only Mexican-like option that, that we had was going to Corbin and eating at the Taco Tico. That yes. Was, that was the closest well, that, we got. That has changed quite a bit because I, I, there's at least two or three in Clay County now. And uh, it's actually a lot harder in a lot of these towns to find sort of traditional Southern food. I mean, there are, you know, even in Middlesboro, where I, where I grew up, I don't think there really is a place that does that. Um, it's just not, you know, people kind of tend to gravitate to other things. Were there just not very many Mexican restaurants in Western Kentucky? No, there were some, I mean, but, but not, not the like, same number. Not like not like in the mountains. I mean, I don't care how small the town is in the mountains. It has a Mexican place. If you yeah. have, if you have 2000 people or more, you have a Mexican place. I mean, you would think that a lot of the Mexican restaurants would be tied to a large degree to uh, Mexican and, and uh, Latin American agricultural workers. And you would think they would have a lot of those in Western Kentucky. So it's, that's a little bit of a puzzle. I think though, I think a lot of those folks are there to work, right? And the ones yeah. in Eastern Kentucky, this is the work they're doing is the, right. is the restaurant. Uh, I mean, but what's interesting about them is they're almost none of them are chains, right? So they all sort of are independent things. Right. And, and that's kind of unique too. I mean, how many, the Mexican restaurant economy is so different than really every other form of food, at least in this part of the country, because it's almost all independent. There are no large scale Mexican sit down restaurant chains. No, there really aren't. And a lot of times you'll see where they'll have taken over some failed, um, you know, Pizza Hut or, or yes. Long yeah, John Silver's yeah, or whatever. Yeah subway though you know the, the the building is easily identifiable by its architecture as some chain but that didn't make it and then they go in and, and take it over and, and serve 
tasty Mexican food. In it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but, uh, but hey, I'm, I'm not going to complain. I, I love, uh, that's my Clay County roots coming out, I guess. I, I love, uh, love Mexican food, too. And Lexington has some great Mexican restaurants. Yeah, they do. And, and, you know, Clay County had a really good place. I, I always forget the name of it. Um, but they do Grippo fries. Which oh, is, nice. Which is still like one of the best really bad for you things that I, we go to Clay County about once a year and do a show at this music festival down there. And uh, I always go that, that place and get Grippo fries. I don't know if there's any other place in the state that does it. I'm sure somebody does, but they do it really well in Clay County. Well, and of course, when you're in Clay County, you've also got to eat at, uh, at Pat's Snack Bar and have a Pat's. No, that's where it is. It was at yeah. Pat. Oh, was that, it at Pat's? Okay. It is at Pat's. That's where it is because they do the burgers there too. That's where it is. It's at Pat's. Yeah. Pat's, uh, I grew up eating at Pat's. It used to be Pat's Pool Room when I was little. And, uh, of course, they, they don't have pool tables anymore, so it's just Pat's Snack Bar. But, uh, but I remember when I was little – actually pat the 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 namesake was worked there and what you'd sit at the counter and watch him uh flatten out burger meat and you know they'd fry them up behind him and so it was uh it, it was always a little bit of a questionable uh place to be and so of course i found it very exciting <laughs> when i was yeah. when i was going there my dad would take me in there i would see them playing pool through the through the door in the back and I would say, Hey, that, you know, that looks like fun. He was like, yeah, we're not going back there. So it was, <laughs> uh, he, he knew a lot more about what was going on than, uh, than I did. It just it seemed like a, Hey, there's a pool table. I bet that's lots of fun to play with, but, uh, would have been a good idea. So, well, I, I can't let you go without asking you a little bit about, uh, about what you think we're going to see with sports. I know, uh, you know, of course this is a, uh, a regular topic obviously on KSR, but, do you think we're going to get back? I think they're going to open up stuff in the exact opposite order uh, from when it was closed, right? So, you know, the first thing they, they stopped were sporting events. So I actually think they're going to be the last things to open. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I would be surprised if we have sporting events with mass attendance until next year. I mean – you know, maybe I'll be wrong. I hope I'm wrong, but I just don't see it. I mean, if you look at it, the sporting events and churches have been where the biggest um, expansion of the disease has been across the world. Uh, you know, they say that Italy and Spain, um, sort of Italy and Spain infections all came from one soccer match against the two, when the two countries, teams from two countries played each other. Um so I think it's going to be a while. Uh, there's going to be a lot of push to have it. The pro sports will decide first, though. I mean, they're not going to have college kids playing that aren't getting paid before the pros do. So I think we're a long way away from getting sports back to what it was before. Yeah, of course, obviously, that's, that's disappointing to lots of us. But I think you're probably right. I, I hope that at least we can start getting some televised sports. For most of us, that would – at least be somewhat as good because we you know, – I think that'll happen. I think you'll see – I mean, I saw today golf's going to try to come back mid-June. I think you'll see golf and NASCAR go first because they're kind of individual sports, and then maybe baseball. Um, I think basketball's the hardest one because you have the most contact. Um, and football, they're going – football's – NFL's playing because there's too much money not to play. 
Right. They're going to figure out a way to play. But I think college sports is last. I just – I don't see the, – these universities are going to be – you know, in pro sports leagues, you have a collective bargaining agreement that deals with these issues. I just don't see universities putting themselves up for the lawsuits that will happen if you have kids out there playing during a pandemic. Well, and one of the things that you all talked about on KSR is that you've got to have – there's so many moving parts to get – college athletics playing you've not only it's not just a matter of conferences or even the NCAA but you've got athletic directors and presidents and a lot of instances governors who all have to sign off on people being in the stands or even games happening at all and if one state says no that makes it hard for the other states to do it because just from a legal perspective if California says it's not safe and then they play in Oregon and some kid gets sick in Oregon, you know, you've just asked for a multi-million dollar lawsuit, right? right. Yeah. So I just I, – I, I think they'll play college football and college basketball this year, but it wouldn't shock me if neither of them play till after Christmas. I think pro sports will start back this summer, um, baseball at least. Football, I think, will start in September, and then basketball might just cancel the playoffs and start again next November. Well, I've, and I've also got to ask you about this, because I, I just recently had on the podcast uh, a, fellow, a fellow Middlesbrough grad, uh, Melissa Booth Hall, who, who I understand you all go way back. And yes. she and I talked about the important topic of 13th region basketball from the 1980s. And, uh, that, you know, that was my, uh, hers and my, my time period. So, uh, and, and for me, the golden age of, of high school basketball. Certainly a golden age of 13th region. I mean, back then, you know, not only did you have Clay County with Richie and Russ and all those people, but you had Corbin was good. Kaywood was good. Middlesbrough was good. Uh, you know, there, that was the 13th region back then. Cumberland was good, had had some real basketball. Not so much anymore, but, uh, you know, those were great high school basketball days. And then I think around that time on the high school level, football became the biggest thing. It sort of shifted in the late 80s, early 90s to where I think a lot of the excitement that came from, from uh, basketball shifted to football, to be honest with you. Well, I remember going to all of those regional games. Middlesbrough had uh, in, I guess it was 85, which would have been Richie's freshman year, and I was the same year he was. Uh, Middlesbrough had Clay County beat in the first, first game of the, of the regional tournament. And I think Richie scored something like nine points in the last minute uh, to send it to overtime. And that was the, the year that Clay County went to the finals and got beat by Hopkinsville. And, you know, Clay County should have lost that game to Middlesbrough. And uh, one of the things that I, that I pointed out was that there were just, and you were talking about, there were so many good teams that really were undervalued statewide, like Kaywood, like Cumberland. Cumberland had a team, uh, what, 80, 86, 87, something like that, that was one of the best high school teams I've ever seen. They were crazy good. And but they just didn't get the exposure. Yeah, no, they didn't. But uh, 
They were, they were good times there for, for your all's era. I appreciate, by the way, you having me on here. Uh, and, and I would, I would reiterate Mitch please is the book. And I think if folks, uh, like, uh, the state of Kentucky and are interested in it, I think whether, whether you're a political person or not, I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah. It's a fun book and follows your decision-making and gives you a little look into the political process behind the scenes, I guess it is. And, and plus a, a visit to each county. And so it's, uh, it's worth picking up for sure. And congratulations on, uh, on making it to the New York Times bestseller list. Quite an accomplishment. Appreciate it, Alan. Thank you. You can find links to Matt's social media and website in show notes, as well as a link to his book, Mitch Please. Please hit the subscribe button to the eKentucky podcast to be notified of future episodes, and please leave a five-star rating. It really helps others find the podcast. Also, please tell a friend who might enjoy the podcast. You can follow my other explorations of Kentucky food on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I would love for you to visit the new Eat Kentucky Patreon at patreon.com slash eatkentucky where you can support the podcast and receive bonuses and previews. The Eat Kentucky theme is by Art Mize. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at eatkentucky at gmail.com. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Lexington area, I'm a realtor with Keller Williams Bluegrass Realty. I would love to talk to you. Until next time, this is Alan Corbett.